Hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Um, what a game yesterday, right? I'm sorry, I could not start this off without recognizing that. And for the Clemson fans in the room, I apologize. But the last time we did this, I was a captain in Afghanistan in 2013. So I thought about, I thought about so much yesterday. I thought about the Psalms. Psalm 96:12 says, Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. And I thought of old Dan Birdwell that said, you got to play this game like someone just hit your mother with a two-by-four. <laughs> Very spiritual there. But um, anyway, out of respect for the Clemson fans, I will stop at that and get into the message this morning. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> so um, I started playing golf in my 20s, and uh, my twin brother was in flight school at Fort Rucker, Alabama at the time. And apparently, if you're a pilot, you also have to play golf. I didn't know that until he went, but um, that's what you got to do. So he convinced me to take up the game. And and though I started off a bit rocky, I I think I got good enough. And if you need a definition for good enough, um, my goal is not to embarrass myself. And it takes a lot to embarrass me. So the standard is not very high there. But anyway, I I started playing. I sort of got better uh, to the point where I thought I needed custom clubs. Uh, because a, uh, a newly married man with a 30 handicap needs custom clubs and not lessons. So I did that. And uh, lo and behold, I found myself on one of the nicest golf courses in South Carolina, uh, probably in the region, some of you may know it, uh, Caledonia. Have you ever heard of that one? Um, people like me aren't supposed to play there. But anyway, I, I did. I found myself there as a single player. And what I, what I realized is if you show up to a golf course by yourself, they put you with other people. Didn't know that. And, and I was put with uh, other people. And not only other people, I was put with three members of Caledonia Golf Club. Jay Sermon and his 30 handicap. So anyway, um, they hit from the back tees, which is where the good people hit from. I hit from the front tees, which is where the bad people hit from. And so we, we got to hole number one. They all hit you know, beautiful, beautiful drives. And uh, so then I go up to my red tee, and I hit, and um, I, I, hit, I hit the ball. Um, it unfortunately uh, did not go straight. It went into the side of their golf cart, which is how I started the game. So anyway, we find ourselves up on the green. You know, they've hit two shots t- to be on the green. I've hit 11 and a small mammal of some sort. And so uh, they were doing that thing they do with their putters to, like, look and see if the, uh, I guess, to see if the green is level. And I, so I did that too because I just figured that's what you do. And uh, unfortunately for me, I, did, I forgot about the uh, sand trap being directly behind me. So when I took a step backwards, you know, to get a better angle, I toppled directly into the sand trap. And since I had sunscreen on, I came out looking sort of like a sugar cookie uh, <laughs> in a way. But I will say I learned an incredible lesson uh, that day. Um, I learned to lie on your scorecard. No, it's good. I learned to stay humble. And uh, if anybody needed it that day, it was me. Which is going to be the focus of this morning's message, which today is going to come from the book of Philippians. So a little bit of background on Philippians. Uh, Philippians is considered one of the four prison epistles. So it was likely written by Paul from a Roman prison in the late 50s. Uh, The other prison epistles are Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Um, Anyway, Paul wrote this to the church at Philippi as a letter of thanksgiving. 
and uh, for their partnership in the gospel. But he also wrote it as a letter of warning, uh, reminding them that false teachings and disunity are a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel. And now his promotion of unity was based on nothing but the gospel, and we're going to see that much more clearly this morning. But I read a quote by D.A. Carson that kind of summed up the thesis for this morning. He said, Christian fellowship then is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. So let's move into uh, this morning's scripture, which is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through, 11, 1 through 11. The title this morning is From the Cradle to the Cross to the Crown, and it's an appropriate title this morning as we look at the work of Jesus Christ. And I'd invite you to read, read along in your Bible or on your phone, and um, I will make a quick note Uh, The reason Andrew and all the others who use this platform say this is because you need nothing between you and God. Uh, We all have the same access. We all have the same tools. And as a believer, it's our responsibility uh, to know the word. And I I got a good example of this. Uh, This is a picture that John will put up there. Edwin Kahn and I went hiking in North Carolina last month uh, for about three days and I had the map, one that I pay a lot of money for on my phone. But every break, Edwin would uh, pull out his paper map and check and you know, check to make sure I was, in fact, right. So when I saw that picture, I was like, this is, this is, you know, applies for this morning. So anyway, uh, just in that mindset, you know, y'all got the same access I do, so I'd welcome you to read along this morning. All right, so Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first point that we have this morning from this scripture is the unity that we have in Christ. The unity that we have with each other, the unity that we have with the church, and the unity that we have with him. So going back to verses 1 and 2, Paul says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so what what he's addressing here is from within the body of the church. Selfishness within the body of the church. Division within the body of the church. Strife 
And let me be clear, this has, this is, and this will continue to happen in every church, from the church at Philippi to the church in Lugolf, because of why? Because the church is made of people, sinful, broken people who desperately need a Savior. But don't worry, says Paul. He says, if you focus on what you have in common through your unity in Christ, through your identity in Christ, a natural result of that is going to be healing. So focus on that and you won't be able to not heal, he says. Look again at the four rhetorical questions that he asks. Any encouragement in Christ? How many times have you been in the Word or been in prayer or meditation and thought of Christ's love for you and been encouraged? Or been encouraged with another's walk with Christ? Or been encouraged by a lost person finding Christ? On days where you really don't want to fight the good fight, but been encouraged by Him? What about comfort from love? Think about the times you've been comforted by his love, his love through others. Think of the moments in your life where nothing but his love could save you. Moments of despair and sadness and grief and illness. And I know that we've all experienced this. Paul goes on to ask any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. And I think we can all agree that we've experienced all of what Paul is asking here. And so David Guzik says this about these rhetorical questions. He said, Paul mentioned these things in a manner that suggests to us that they should all be obvious parts of the Christian experience. To make his rhetorical point, he could have easily just said, if water is wet, if fire is hot, if rocks are hard, and so forth. One of the tools of Satan to stall the advancement of the gospel is disunity. Distraction by worldly things to take the attention away from the gospel. Spurgeon talks about this. He says, Satan always, helps Christ, always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another he delights in. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. And I want to be clear about what we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about agreement on everything just to keep the peace. We're not talking about making everything comfortable while we turn a blind eye to problems, problems that we have to address. Because working through issues is what we have to do. And church, sometimes that just gets uncomfortable, but we have to do it. And we welcome it because the opposite of that would be equally detrimental. Spurgeon finishes with this on that very subject. He said, there's a unity which is seldom broken, the unity of devils who under the service of their great liege master never disagree and quarrel. From this terrible unity, keep us, O God of heaven." So in looking at verse 2, Paul isn't saying that we're going to agree on everything. He is saying be unified in the work of Jesus Christ. Be unified in the gospel. And the rest of it is going to work itself out. 
We're in a fight here and now. The enemy is on ground and he is at work and we would be foolish to think otherwise. Now is the time for the church to work. Now is the time for us to stop talking and work. The world does not need any more charitable organizations. The world doesn't need any more armies or peace corps or weapons or politicians. The world needs, the world only needs the saving power of Jesus Christ. And we have been tasked from the Great Commission in Matthew to do that. To do just that, to spread his message to a lost, lost world. So the question is, can we put our differences aside and do that? Can we unite under the power of the Son of God and do that? Can we put our preferences aside and do that? And perhaps the biggest question is this. Can we humble ourselves and do that? Can we humble ourselves as Christ did? The next six verses of our scripture this morning speak to the humility that we have through Christ. Let's read verses 3 through 8 again. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So humility, humbleness. Do you see the importance from these verses? This entire passage is focused on this humility. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, he told us that he is gentle and lowly of heart. And if you remember the book that we read last year with that title, well, here we see that the lowliness of the mind is also important. The Greek words used in the text are the exact same, tapinos, which is meaning lowly or, or humble. So in lowliness, in humility, in lowliness, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So, so if you've been wronged by someone, there's where we focus. Focus on the humility. Forgive and accept apologies. Forgive and accept apologies because we are forgiven for our sorry state before the Lord. Our God who is perfect in love, perfectly just, who gave his son to die. To die a fully human, miserable, suffering, humiliating experience and to suffer separation from the love of the Father for all of you, for me, for damned sinners. And he did this for us. So how awful is it not to do this for others? How can we not do this for others in light about this? How, how can we not? 
when we interpret Scripture, when we responsibly interpret Scripture, the ultimate authority in interpretation is Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture, not commentaries, not study guides and the like. So with that in mind, with that in mind, look at what Jesus tells us on this very subject. For Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So the question is, who do we want to be? Do we want to forgive others as in this parable or forget the forgiveness extended to us by our creator and harden our hearts? To harden our hearts because we know that we're right. And being right matters most. Is that really who we want to be? And I think most of us would answer no. So what do we do? We humble ourselves as Christ did. We forgive as he has forgiven us. And if we look at his humbleness, at his humility, David Guzik lists uh, some of the ways where Christ humbled himself for us. He says, He was humble in that he took the form of a man and not a more glorious creature like an angel. He was humble in that he was born into an obscure, oppressed place. He was humble in that he was born into poverty among a despised people. He was humble in that he was born as a child instead of appearing as a man. He was humble in submitting to the obedience appropriate to a child in a household. He was humble in learning and practicing a trade and a humble trade of a builder. He was humble in the long wait until he launched out into public ministry. He was humble in the companions and disciples he chose. He was humble in the audience he appealed to and the way he taught. He was humble in the temptations he allowed and endured. He was humble in the weakness, hunger, thirst, and tiredness that he endured. He was humble in his total obedience to his heavenly Father. He was humble in his submission to the Holy Spirit. He was humble in choosing and submitting to the death of the cross. He was humble in the agony of his death. He was humble in the shame, mocking, and public humiliation of his death. He was humble in enduring the spiritual agony of his sacrifice on the cross. So praise God for that. Praise God for this humble Savior, for our humble Savior. So when we go back to these verses to learn about humility, there's two things we need to remember. First is this. We have this. We have this humility in Christ. Verse 5 tells us that we have it. That through him we have it. And deep down we know this. So think about this. If this applies to you. Of that period in your life before you were saved. 
the period in your life prior to salvation. Think of your mindset during that time. Hasn't it changed since you found him? That is because of him, the work that he does through you, not of your doing, but of his. So here he is telling us, relax, I have given you this ability. And next, and I think this can be missed sometimes, is verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So listen, this was not just God sending the Son. This was so much more than that. One of my favorite books on theology is not a textbook from seminary. It is a 100-page book entitled Plain Theology for Plain People. God bless that book. It's a 100-page book uh, written by Charles Octavius Booth. And Booth, Booth was born into slavery on June 13, 1845 in Mobile, Alabama, where my dad was born. He encountered Christianity at a young age, witnessing white and blacks worshiping together in a local Baptist church. He converted to Christianity at the end of the Civil War, was baptized in 1866, and ordained a minister in 1868. And he published a a ton of books. But he wrote this book, Plain Theology for Plain People, for this reason. He wanted to articulate the doctrines of our holy religion with simplicity of arrangement and simplicity of language. And this is what he says about this verse. He says, The giving was not a mere sending. It was therefore not a mere mission in which he was made of no reputation, but it also included as an essential part that he should humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the agonizing and shameful death of the cross. God gave or sacrificed his well-beloved son to such humiliation, such agony, such a death, to suffer in this human nature as he could not suffer as the Son of God. So you see, he humbled himself. He humbled himself, and in this humility, he became like us, because he is the only answer. He is our way out. And for that, for that gift, we worship him. If we go back to verses 9 and 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We worship him because we were created to do so. We are created beings designed to worship. And no matter whether we believe in him or not, we're going to worship. We're either going to worship the God of the heavens and the earth, or we're going to worship the God of this world. The Russian novelist uh, wrote Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov, uh, Dostoevsky. Uh, he said it this way. He said, man, so long as he remains free, has no more constant and agonizing anxiety than to find as quickly as possible someone to worship. And it is necessary that we do so. Martin Luther says this. He says, to gather with God's people and united adoration of the Father is as necessary to the Christian life as prayer. 
Paul tells us as well, he says in these verses that at the end of times, we are all going to worship. We're all going to call Jesus Christ Lord and recognize who he is. Chuck Smith touches on this as well when he says, one day you're going to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Those people who speak so despairingly of him now, those people who still mock his name, those who use his name so carelessly in their profanity, those who have spoken out so adversely against him, one day they too shall bow their knee and they shall confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. The problem is that in their day, their confession will not be unto salvation. You see, Paul tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved for with the mouth man confesses unto salvation. But that will not be so for them in that day. Their confession will not be unto salvation. It will be of condemnation of themselves. And so we worship. And it is only right that we do so. One of the best books I've read about our faith, about the heart of our faith, is The Cross of Christ by John Stott. And on worship, he says this. He says, The Christian community is a community of the cross, for it has been brought into being by the cross, and the focus of its worship is the Lamb once slain, now glorified. So the community of the cross is a community of celebration, a Eucharistic community, ceaselessly offering to God through Christ the sacrifice of our praise and thanksgiving. The Christian life is an unending festival, and the festival we keep now that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us is a joyful celebration of his sacrifice, together with a spiritual feasting upon it. In this celebratory feast, we are all participants, but what is it we share in? Not in the offering of Christ's sacrifice, nor even in the movement of it, but only in the benefits achieved by it. For this costly sacrifice and for the precious blessing it has won for us, we will never cease, even in eternity, to honor and adore the Lamb. And this is why we gather on Sundays in worship. And worship is not just singing. It is all-encompassing. The dictionary defines worship using terms like honor and reverence and respect. And those are all true. They're all correct. But I think we, we know that there's more. Because true worship encompasses all of you. Now, now think about something that you really, really love, that, that you adore and, and, and move away from, you know, obviously God and, and even from family. Like, think about, like, one thing that you just absolutely adore. I'm going to be completely honest up here. And for me, it's deer hunting. Um, I love it. I love everything about it. It's always on my mind. This is part confession. Uh, when, we, when we pass land on a trip, I look at it from that perspective. I look at train features, natural cover, food sources. I look at weather patterns. Cold fronts coming in, rain stopping early in the afternoon, gear. I'm sorry, Brittany. Um, I, I'm, I'm up to speed on all the latest gear and clothing and guns and bows and ammo. And um, Anyway, uh, I wear shirts and stuff that advertises the brands I believe in. And just to be sure, 
I've got stickers on my truck to let all of you know about my passion. Um, so again, deer hunting probably meets the, uh, you know, the definition of worship for me. But, but knowing this, and in all seriousness, like, knowing this, how much greater should our worship of him be? Because what Christ has provided for us doesn't compare. And I think we, we all see that. Christ has provided us a way out of an eternally bad situation. And he has given us a gift He paid the price for our sins. Andrew mentioned last week that on the cross, the Father turned his face from the Son. And I hope that point wasn't lost on us, on how severe that was, that he turned his face from the one who knew no sin, but took on our sin so that he could look on us. So God is perfectly just, and as such, sin has to be atoned for. And in a perfectly just situation, sin has to be punished. But God is also perfect in love. And in the greatest act of love ever, instead of having us pay the price of our sin, which is death, he allowed another to do it for us. And that is Jesus Christ. And so on the day that we face our Creator, we will be welcomed to Him. That punishment having already occurred, that debt already paid, so that we can live in eternity with Him. And that is a hard concept to grasp. That that is a hard type of love for us to grasp on this side of creation. Because in our fallen world, it is difficult to imagine that someone or something loves us so much that all of our sins would be atoned for and forgiven. Our human, our finite minds, no matter how educated, cannot grasp this type of love. I remember a story from a sermon I heard years ago that probably came uh, the closest to painting this picture of love. And it's a story about a little girl named Mary. And Mary had grown up knowing that she was different from other kids, and she hated it. She was born with a cleft palate and had to bear the jokes and stares of cruel children who teased her nonstop about her misshapen lip, her crooked nose, and her garbled speech. So with all the teasing, Mary grew up hating the fact that she was different. She was convinced that no one outside of her family could ever love her until she entered Miss Leonard's class. So Miss Leonard had a warm smile, a round face, and shiny brown hair. And while everyone in her class liked her, Mary came to love Miss Leonard. So in the 1950s, it was common for teachers to give their children an annual hearing test. However, in Mary's case, in addition to her cleft palate, she was barely able to hear out of one ear. Determined not to let the other children have another difference to point out, she would cheat on the test each year. The whisper test was given by having a child walk to the classroom door and then turn sideways, close one ear with a finger, and then repeat something that the teacher whispered. Mary turned her ear toward her teacher and pretended to cover her good ear. She knew teachers would often say things like, "'The sky is blue,' Or what color are your shoes? But not on that day. 
Surely God put seven words in Miss Leonard's mouth that changed Mary's life forever. When the whisper test came, Mary heard the words, I wish you were my little girl. So this is us before God. We're disfigured by our sin. We are broken from it. And our world is distorted. But our Father says to us, I'm glad you are my child. And we have a Father that loves us so much greater than what we read in this story. We have so much in common for all of us who call on the name of the Lord. And Paul listed four of them uh, in our scripture this morning. This is what we have to focus on. Let's put ourselves second to others. Let's humble ourselves. Let's not focus on whether we're right, whether our position is the strongest, whether our plan is the best. Let's focus on Christ. And Paul tells us that through Christ, the ability already resides within us. And out of all of this, let's worship. Worship with our hearts, our amazing and loving creator, one that did give us a way out, who will not turn his face from us. So as we end this morning, I'd like to read this in regards to our virtue, our unique Christian virtue of humility. And I found this while looking at an old textbook, and I think, it's, I think it sums up this morning. It says, in the Philippian church, as well as in our churches today, we often find it difficult to get along with one another. Why? According to Paul, the reason may be rivalry, conceit, or selfish ambition. In one word, pride. So what is the remedy? Again, one word encapsulates Paul's answer, humility. In humility, everyone should look not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. And may God help us to do so. As we strive for humility, let us contemplate the outcome of Christ. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this church. Father, during this time, we ask that you help us stay united in your gospel. Father, we ask for help focusing on your will. We ask for your wisdom, Father, this morning as we begin to select deacons for the next year. We ask for wisdom as we prepare our budget for the next year. Please help us to steward all of your resources well. Father, for those this morning who are hurting we ask for comfort. For those who are dealing with medical problems this morning, we ask for healing. For all of us, Lord, we ask for the peace that only you can provide, the peace that surpasses all understanding, and we thank you. We thank you and we worship you for our gift, your son in our place. And we pray in his mighty and beautiful name. Amen.